0: And so I'm, I'm excited about this study. We Last week we looked at true healing of the heart. We're going to move to the second area, true healing of the home today. And I want us to look at a very familiar parable when it comes to the home that was told to actually be applied to your spiritual relationship with our Heavenly Father. But it's, what's interesting is that God used an example of the family, of Uh, of a father and his son, and he tried to make a point to an older brother. So you probably know the story. Turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. You can stand with me as we just read um, uh, the beginning of this parable together uh, so that you kind of remember where it's going. I I won't read all of these verses now, but we'll look at the entire context in just a moment. It's called the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son probably should be called the parable of the unforgiving older brother. Um, That was the point that Jesus was trying to drive home to some of the uh, religious crowd, but he used certainly the story of a father and the lost son. And he says, um, he also said, Jesus speaking here in verse 11, a man had two sons the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that I have coming to me, my inheritance. And so he distributed the assets to them. And then not many days later, the younger son gathered together all that he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish. Living, and after he had spent everything, a severe famine struck the country, and he had nothing. And then he went to work for one of the citizens in that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the the cher- the, the carob pods and the pigs that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. <laughs> Anybody ever slopped the hogs? You know what I'm talking about? Did you ever crave to eat what they were eating? That's pretty desperate here. It says, verse 17, when he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, what did he do? He said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. Well, he made a good decision at this point after making some bad choices that affect his relationship with his family, with specifically his father, and uh, we're going to talk about the family and the healing, true healing in the home today. So let's pray together and ask God to touch us, speak to us through his word today. Father, We we thank you for this story. We thank you that, Jesus, you spoke in parables so that we might get a picture here on earth of kingdom life. And Lord, you've called us to be living parables. You've called the home to be a model of covenant love in our marriages, in our, in our parenting, and the way that we love and relate to one another. And Lord, I pray that you would show us our need for true healing. Lord, for some I pray that this would be preventative medicine. For others I pray it would be uh, something to help diagnose where they are in their journey with you. And for some, I pray that would be the beginning of a drawing back together of, of reconciliation with you and restoration of the home. We pray this in Jesus' name. You can be seated. Amen. Um, true healing. As I said last week, a lot of times we look at various areas or we, we hear the, the pastors preaching on healing. Uh, maybe you uh, would like to just kind of line up, and I, I say a particular prayer for everyone. And, and listen, I, I know that it's important that we pray for all types of healing. But Last week, I spoke of one of the most important areas, and I want that to set the context for this, the healing of the heart, spiritual healing, being back in right relationship with God, uh, God doing something with this dead, depraved heart and replacing it with a, a new heart and putting me into a, a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, that's got to be the starting point. That's the most important healing anyone can experience. And so when we talk about true healing of the home, understand first if the home is going to be all that God called it to be, the individuals in that home have to come to a place where their hearts have experienced true healing from God. That's why we've got to have gospel-centered Homes. Uh, one of our uh, adult life groups is studying grace based parenting right now, but we need the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ to permeate the homes. And so keep this message in the context of the importance of true healing of the hearts, so that we understand the priority of living in right relationship with the Father and modeling that even in our homes. And then next week, and it, for some of you this morning, It is going to be so important that if you're here today, that you please come back next Sunday. Because next Sunday, I'm going to speak of true healing of our hurts. And some of you have been in situations in homes, and and unfortunately, there were certain repairs that were not made. And, And there are some things that I might mention that would be goals that you feel like you have already been a victim of hurt in those areas and that uh, there's a situation that is beyond reconciliation and you've moved on from that, but you're still dealing with some hurts. And so if you see anything that presents an unrealistic expectation, or you see anything that presents to you maybe a hurt that you can't overcome, please be back next Sunday as we deal with a a follow-up message on true healing of our hurts, both self-inflicted and sometimes we're the victim of Hurts the the word of God does not leave us hopeless. It gives us hope in any and every situation you might find yourself in. And so again, it's going to be important that you sandwich the message today between those the truth of the heart and then our hurts. Next week we'll look at that. For today, many of us might be in a place of diagnosing where we are. And so I'm going to describe what we see here in this parable and pray that the Holy Spirit points out to you what those goals should be in your life depending on where you're at in that journey or your ministry to others in your family or outside of your home as you seek to be a minister of reconciliation in the body of Christ and in this world. Bottom line is homes like this home here in Scripture— Homes are in trouble every day. Families are under attack every day. And so we want to keep in mind that before God ever instituted a church, if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, before God instituted a nation beginning with Abraham and said, I'm going to make you a great nation, who was Abraham? He started with a man and his wife and the promise of a family, a son. Before he instituted a nation, though, he created a home. He began with Adam and Eve and a family. And that first family, living in a perfect world, still had its problems. That first family had dysfunction that they had to deal with. And there's been, ever since Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, the promise of that uh, seed of a woman that would crush the head of the serpent. There's been a message of redemptive hope from Genesis to Revelation. The late W.A. Criswell called it a scarlet thread of redemption all the way through the Bible that we can see that God is in the restoring business even though we seem to be broken again and again and again. The home is in need of restoration. Max Licato tells a story in one of his books about two paddle boats that back around the turn of the previous century, back around 1900, these two battle boats left Memphis, and they were headed to New Orleans, and they had uh, these um, loads that they were carrying. They had a responsibility to, to deliver there in the city of New Orleans, but some Uh, challenges got to being made between the men on one of the paddle boats to some of the men on the other paddle boats, and it led to a race, and one was saying that the other was inferior to them when it came to the speed to get down the river. So as they began to race, they began placing bets as they yelled across the way to one another uh, which paddle boat would get to New Orleans first. And so the one that was trailing began to throw Cargo overboard. They were getting rid of cargo that they were supposed to deliver because they got so competitive and they knew that they could make something if they won this race. And so they're getting rid of the cargo. The other one realized, look, they're throwing the cargo overboard. We can, as as we're trying to race, we're burning up all of our coal. and, And so we can use the cargo to fuel the fire here. And so the race resulted in the two paddle boats arriving in New Orleans, and yes, one of them could say that they won the race, but both had to admit in all of their competing with one another, they had burned up or thrown overboard, they had discarded and destroyed the very cargo that they were supposed to get to the destination. And so many times, families, if we're not careful, that's what we're doing with those in our households, especially dads, we need to be reminded of this, But God has called us as a family to have a destination, to to hear one day the well done of God, to see not only that our families arrive in heaven with us, but that on the way that we glorify God in all that we do. And when we hurt and destroy those relationships in the home Because we're we're competing with this world or we want everything this world has to offer. So many times it's our own ego, it's our own pride. What does it profit if we gain the whole world and lose our soul? What does it profit if we gain the whole world and lose the souls of our family? If we arrive at our destination but we've burned up those important relationships along the way. Luke's theme is simple. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, Remember the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus? He said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. So he tells three parables here in Luke 15 about seeking and saving the lost. It becomes a picture, you know, the, the story of the, the lost sheep and the lost coin, becomes pictures of God's redemptive love and wanting to restore people to a right relationship with the Father. And so then he describes a family situation And while this is to be a parable to give us principles of our relationship with the heavenly father that we sang about just a moment ago, it also serves by default as the descriptions of what goes on in the life of a family when there's a need for reconciliation. That's why we started with the heart. It's most important that we're reconciled to God. And so the parable pictures the, the love of the father for a son that he wants to see restored. But why does the analogy work? It's because of God's priority on the home and that understood priority on the home, that if the relationship's not right in the home, that relationship needs to be restored by the grace of God and can be restored by the race of God. It's kind of uh, that relationship that's pictured as a covenant love in Ephesians chapter 5 between a husband and wife, and that parental love between the parents and the children in Ephesians 6. So this parable can teach us some things. The cycle is so much like Israel and the church of, of, of wandering from God and being brought back, but it can be applied to your home this morning. So I want you to look at these stages I want you to see if there are any relationships in your family that can be diagnosed so that you can know how you can begin to pray for true healing in the home, so that you can set some goals for true healing in the home. Notice that this all began with sinful choices. That's why we said last week, the heart of the problem is the... All right, somebody said it. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And so there were some sinful choices that were made in this parable. In verse 12, you know, we, we see that this man had two sons, and that the younger said that he wanted his share of the entire estate, everything that he had coming to him. He wanted his part. And so it was distributed. This choice was made by the son to go ahead and take what, he had come to him and leave, and it says he, he not many days later, the son um, gathered all that he had. He, he traveled to a distant country. He, he went on this journey. and The word distant really has to do with, with far away. It was to describe and picture a separation as the one who had been in relationship with the father, and even with his older brother, now he is separated from them. Now it is possible, dad, it is possible, mom, it is possible, young people, to be at home and still be far away. You can be emotionally absent and bring as much harm on your family. Some have even speculated that to be in the house but emotionally distant can bring more separation and destruction than to be... Uh, in a distant country, and to be far away, physically removed from the situation. Either way, it brings dysfunction and brokenness. And he made a choice to leave, and he, he squandered things on what he called loose living, thoughtless, meaningless decisions, living for the moment. Again, that is another thing that brings about the sinful choice to live for me, to to say, I want this family to revolve around me. It's all about who I am and what I want. And so that became a, a sinful choice. This son was of age to make his own decisions here, and so the father let him leave. I want you to see something about the love of our heavenly father and about your personal responsibility when it comes to our relationship with him and our relationship with our families. First of all, we need to know something about that love. That that is that it's volitional. What do we mean by volitional? It's an act of the will, volition. It's, It's a choice, whether it's a sinful choice or a choice to love. Love is volitional. And the love of this Father let the Son choose, even when choosing meant that he would leave. And our Heavenly Father gives us the opportunity to make a choice And when we love people, we don't try to control them. We don't try to manipulate them. We don't try to micromanage them. We love them, and then they have to choose whether or not they will reciprocate that love. Controlling, listen, God could have been controlling with us, but He desired us to have a relationship, so He gave us a choice. And in the same way, when we try to control those that we love so much, we can push them further away rather than drawing them to us. Now, God offers us the Holy Spirit, but we have to make a choice to yield to the Holy Spirit. And and then when the Spirit fills us, we have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. So we're not being controlled By the people around us, but there is a Holy Spirit who comes in and provides a self-control and the ability to have love and joy. But love is volitional. It's not real love unless there's a choice. People will say sometimes, well, why did God even give Adam and Eve a choice? Because he didn't want us to be like the other creatures. He gave us a conscience and the ability to choose so that there would be a relationship, not something that was forced. Love not only is volitional, but if it's volitional, it also is vulnerable. To allow yourself to give and receive love, especially in the home. To allow yourself to give and to receive love is to make a choice to be vulnerable. It's to make a choice to allow yourself to experience pain. Jesus loved Did he only love those who would be his disciples? Did he only love those who would stick with him to the very end? I believe that Jesus modeled love to even Judas Iscariot who would betray him. And I believe that Jesus loved those who would crucify him. So much so that he would say, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And so when you begin to love, that started the day you chose to be a part of a family, right? When you stood at an altar and said, from this day on I will love and honor and cherish you, that love became a vulnerable love. You're going to experience some pain and heartache and heartbreak along the way. But that's the nature of love. It is vulnerable. Now in the theological words of Garth Brooks. (laughs) He said, I could have missed the pain, but I'd have had to miss the dance. (laughs) Could have missed the pain, but I I would have missed out on the relationship. And and so pain is part of it. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And so I just want to tell you, and, and, and I know maybe there are some newlyweds here this morning that don't want to hear this, but There will be pain involved in the process along the way because love is a vulnerable thing. You bring children into this world, they will bring you more joy than you've ever experienced and they'll break your heart more than you ever expected from time to time. Love is vulnerable. But finally, I want you to keep this in mind in the process. You say, well, then is it worth it to love? Is it worth it to commit myself to a family like that, to to, to be volitional, to choose to love and choose to receive love, but also to choose to be vulnerable and experience pain. Love is always victorious. We know that 1 Corinthians 13 says that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, but it also says love never fails. Love never fails. Love If love never fails, that means love is Always victorious, but you would say, Pastor Robbie, I know some situations where someone loved unconditionally, and like the example of Judas Iscariot, it was not reciprocated, and they rebelled, they left, they hurt, they never came back, and the relationship was never restored and never what it should have been. Keep this in mind. Jesus loved anyway. He loved, and he was crucified for his love, but he did rise again. And even if those you love that spouse, those children, those parents, those that you love, even if they crucify you. And this is why you need to be here next week. You will rise again. You will rise again. There is healing. True love experiences a true healing. It's not always in our time. It's often in God's time. But Jesus rose again, even though his love took him to a cross. Nothing, nothing is ever wasted when we love as Jesus loves. There may be some sinful choices along the way. Why do we have the opportunity to make sinful choices? Because God is a God of love and love is volitional. He gives us a choice. We choose to love, others may choose to sin. In this environment that the father was providing for the son, he chose to leave. The father didn't try to control him. He did not demand that he stay at home. He let him go. He let him experience some things, and that's why we need to move on to what he experienced a little bit here, because sinful choices can lead to serious consequences. Serious consequences. You say, yeah, but what what if they choose to continue? What, What if this child that I'm praying for, this grandchild that I'm praying for, in our home they continue to make these choices? There will be some serious consequences. What did we see in verse 14? After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck the country. Listen, hard times are going to come, and when we're not close to the people we love, we experience even greater consequences. And he had nothing. He goes to work for one of the citizens of the country. He's in the field. He, what is he doing? He's feeding the pigs and he wants to, he's longing, he is hungry, he is empty, and everything's been wasted, and he's broken. And so it, it's, it, it all comes to an end. Sin may be fun for a while, and in that family setting, you may have a family member who chooses to get involved in things that will hurt them and break the hearts of their family members, but it will ultimately come to an end, the, the joy that they think they're receiving from it, the pleasure. What did Hebrews 11 say about Moses as one of the heroes of the faith? He, he chose to suffer with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. It runs out. There is a narrow road that leads to life, and few find it. There is a broad road that leads to destruction. Many are walking in it. Proverbs fourteen twelve. there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. It runs out. Why we discipline our children, right? Because they need to know. We do discipline our children, right? They need to know that there are consequences to sinful choices. And, and sinful choices in the home lead to serious consequences. Proverbs 13:24 says, Spare he who spares the rod hates his children. Well, I don't hate my kids just because I don't discipline them. Listen, if, if we want to bless them, he says, we will love discipline. And now, that kind of changes over the years, but when they're young and in the home, we're kind of like the coach who is leading everything and, and drawing up everything for them and giving them direction. That coaching season, once they get into adolescence, which is Adolescence is really something that we've created in the past hundred years, but they get into adolescence, this period between childhood and adulthood, and we have to move from being that coach to more of a cheerleader, saying man, you can do it, I've got your back, I'm with you, and then we have to transition from that to more of a counselor as they become adults and they call on us for advice from time to time. But when they're young, it's so important to teach them that there are consequences to sinful choices. God loves us so much that he gives us a choice. But the power to choose that's in our hand is not the power to choose the consequences of the choice. I think Adrian Rogers put it this way, you're free to choose, You're not free not to choose, and you're not free to choose the consequences of your choice. And so your choices will have serious consequences when we choose to sin, especially the consequences of devastation it can bring on a family. And so sometimes we make the mistake, parents, we make the mistake, even sometimes, spouse in our marriage, husband, wife, sometimes we make the mistake of when that spouse or when those children get involved in sin and they make sinful choices, we don't let them experience the consequences. We, we begin to feel broken for them before they're broken for themselves because we love them and we want the best for them and we don't want to see them suffer. And we interrupt the consequences. And we forgive and and, and push things aside before they've shown any act of repentance whatsoever. We bail them out of situations where God's trying to teach them a hard lesson. And we don't show tough love and allow them to experience the consequences God would pour out on them and so they continue in that lifestyle, they continue in that behavior, because we've become enablers in the process. The father didn't, was the father looking for the son? Absolutely. He saw him coming from afar off. Did he go and drag him back? Not at all. He, did, he didn't go and get him and drag him back. There had to be brokenness and repentance. So listen, there's a process of intervention. No doubt about it. It's described by Jesus to the church, and I believe it also applies in the home in Matthew chapter 18. If you have a family member or a church member who's caught in a sin, then you, in Galatians 6, says you who are spiritual, Matthew 7 says get the log out of your own eye first, right? So, So don't go just because you're thinking they made you look bad go because your heart's right with God and you, you just, you're broken and you want to see them restored. But you go and you confront them. You point out, hey, this is this is destructive behavior. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting your family. You're hurting your parents. You're hurting your husband. You're hurting your wife. And so you go and, and you talk to them. And if, if you refuse to repent, you take that brother, you take that sister in Christ and you you point out what's going on there. We call this process church discipline, but it works in the home as well to bring reconciliation. If they still choose not to repent, if they choose to continue to rebellion, and I don't mean they say, listen, I know this is wrong. Help me. I'm struggling. And they still battle. Listen, there are processes we can work with that. But if they say, I don't care what you think. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. He said, then bring it before the church. So there's a process to confront and help bring this conviction. Ephesians 4, 15, we're to speak the truth in love in those situations, no doubt about it, but mom, dad, husband, wife, you are not the Holy Spirit. I'm not the Holy Spirit. God can use us. He can fill us with the Spirit. He can use our words, but sometimes you need to let the Spirit of God bring the conviction into their life and not interrupt the process. Let them experience the spiritual conviction for themselves. So we move from serious consequences to what? Spiritual conviction. Serious consequences. God allows those serious consequences in our life to lead to a place of spiritual conviction. To convict is only the Holy Spirit can do. Now, even if the Spirit convicts and we work our way through this process, some of the, and you need to know this just in case there, it might be someone here who would think, well, if that's the case, if there's redemptive hope, then I'm going to see the grace of God as license, and, and I'm going to continue in sin, and I can experience the grace of God later. Don't forget the warning of Romans chapter 6, which says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how can we that are dead to sin live in it any Longer. So if you're just kind of thinking, well, I'm going to live my life my way. I don't care who I hurt. One day I'll get right with God. Then that's a, a strong sign that you're not born again. Grace that saves is grace that sanctifies and calls you to be a new creation in Christ and want to be more Christ-like and be the best for him and for your family. But there are some consequences that even though you experience spiritual conviction, those consequences may continue. And so I kind of want to go back to that and and point out verse 31, although it's at the end of this story. As the father is dealing with the older son, he said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. You are always with me and everything I have is yours. What does that mean about the younger son? There were some things that he would not get back. There were some things that he had squandered wasted. Listen, he was brought back into the home, and there were some things that by grace were lavished upon him, but there were also some things that he would never get back. And the grace of God would carry him through, but he would miss out on some things. David, after his sin with Bathsheba, lost the son that was conceived in adultery. Did God forgive David? Absolutely. Did God restore His kingdom in some unique ways and put some people around him that would kill giants He couldn't kill? You bet. Thank God He restores the years at the locusts ate, but He wouldn't bring His son back. And sometimes the serious consequences stay with us for a long time. But the spiritual conviction reminds us that there's a grace that we need to experience. Look at how he experiences in this story in verse 17. It says, when he came to his senses, he says, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger. Our prayer for someone who is living in such a way that it's hurting the home hurting relationships in the home, is that God would bring them to a place that they would come to their senses. I wish I could say that happens every single time, but that goes back to our ability to choose. But that is a great prayer for you to be praying. Lord, bring them to their senses. Show them what they're doing. Help them to understand the consequences of their behavior. Help them to understand what they're missing out on. That child, that grandchild who's missing out on the blessings of the home that they were part of, that husband, that wife who's missing out on that home, pray that God would show them and convict them of what they're missing out on. Again, you're not the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit bring the spiritual conviction, but you pray, you speak the truth in love, and you let the consequences speak. Don't minimize the consequences because they're there to bring them to the place of conviction. Sometimes it's also good, as the father was looking for him, but he was still far from home, sometimes it's also good for you to pray that God would bring somebody else into their life other than a family member, other than a family member. I don't know what that, why that is, and, and I'm not encouraging laziness among Christian families that you say, well, I'm not going to say anything to it. Well, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say... But there's nothing wrong with you praying, Lord, I know who he goes to school with. Lord, I know where he works. Lord, I pray that you would put somebody around them that would show them your love, that would model the Christian life, that would bring so much conviction into their life that when they're around me, I can just be sweetness and light, and they still experience the confrontation and conviction. I've seen God do that. He'll do that. You begin to pray that God would put the right people around them to help bring that spiritual conviction into their life. Well, What did he do when he was convicted? And This is so important, especially if you're the one struggling this morning or you feel like you're the one that's brought some hurt into the home. There was a sincere confession, not just a confession, not just a, sorry, my bad, I did it, okay, I'll take what punishment comes my way. A sincere confession. In verse 18, he says, I'll get up and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of the hired hands. See, he's making No demands. When he gets up, it says that he went to his father. When the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. The father ran and he threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Now I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He comes and he's saying, listen, whatever the consequences have to continue to be, whatever brings about restoration... Father, I've sinned, and he was being so sincere in that process. He took full responsibility for his own behavior, and a sincere confession is not one that has some buts that follow. Oh, honey, you know I was wrong when I did this, but remember what you did to kind of drive me to it. Uh, Honey, you you know that that behavior is wrong, and I'm sorry that I did it, but you... Mom, Dad, you know, I shouldn't have been there, I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have gone. But y'all, whenever you add the buts to the process, the confession no longer becomes sincere. You're doing just like Adam and Eve in playing the blame game. What well, was that woman? It was the serpent. The devil made me do it. It becomes insincere. He called his actions what they were. He said, I've sinned against heaven and against you. He made no demands. Again, it's a sincere confession. An insincere confession says, well, if I say the right things, I'm entitled to this. Grace means undeserved. And so when we bring that entitlement mentality to our confessions, we're not understanding grace. We throw ourselves at the mercy of those that we've sinned against calling it what it is. In in Psalm 32, David said that he was so broken up over this that it was physically affecting him. His depression had gotten so low, and he said that when I confessed my sin to God, when when I poured it out to him and confessed that sin, we know he had the help of Nathan the prophet who kind of got in his face about it, but when he confessed that sin, it brought healing and rejoicing because his confession was sincere. Remember the story of uh, Joseph? And his brothers, they had sold him into slavery, convinced father that he was dead, eaten by a wild beast, mangled. and Then he's in Egypt, and the way up was down for Joseph, and God makes him this great prime minister in the land, and he's organizing everything, and the brothers are going there to kind of save their family and ask for food and, and, and to ask for grain. and It's revealed to them that the very one who's going to make the decision of whether or not they will get in on what it takes to survive is the very brother that they had sold into slavery, whom their father thought was dead. Remember what their father Jacob said to the brothers? In Genesis chapter 50, he says, look, this is a dying father here that wants to see his boys reconciled. And he says, I want you to go to him, go to Joseph and say, please forgive the suffering we've caused. Don't, listen, you you look at the passage, I'm thinking, man, they could have said, yeah, but Joseph, you have to admit, you were a spoiled brat. Remember how you said that we would all bow down and work? Joseph, you drove us to it. You drove us nuts. They didn't say that. They said, we're sorry. We were wrong, we sinned, we caused suffering. And Then there was reconciliation in the midst of many tears. Even Jesus let go of his rights, though he had never sinned for the sake of rec- reconciliation. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteous of God in him. He opened not his mouth, he, he paid the price for our sin Teaching us something about not holding so tight to all of our rights and what we have coming to us and get rid of that entitlement mentality. Sincere confession. Ultimately, and this is the goal, this is what we're praying for, this is what we're believing that God can do in His power by His grace when we experience and follow this full term. A sensational celebration. Sensational. The word sensational means that there are extraordinary elements that are both seen and heard. <laughs> extraordinary to the senses. We see and we hear this sensational celebration that the father throws because of the son. It says the father told his slaves, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. and Put sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine who was dead, remember last week we were dead in trespasses and sins? God made us alive in him. He's now alive again. He was lost. Now he's found. They began to celebrate. See, it's not about Even in reconciliation, it's not about the ego of the one who was wrong being restored. It's about there being love in the home again. It's about mom and dad being who God called them to be, brother and sister, father, son, father, daughter. We celebrate it because only God can make that happen. It's based on grace, just like our relationship with the father. We begin to have that grace-based home, that gospel-centered home home that models to the rest of the world what the love and the power of God can do. In 1972, an attacker in a museum there, part of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, went in and, and he took a hammer and he delivered 12 blows before anybody could stop him on a statue that's very famous known as uh, Michelangelo's Pieta. He had designed it hundreds of years earlier. And some say, said it was more real to life than life itself, but you, you, perhaps you've seen the statue or pictures of it, but it's, the, it, it's Mary holding Jesus after he's come off of the cross. Extremely valuable artwork. A man just takes a hammer and begins to destroy and there were those who began to argue that afterwards that it shouldn't be put back together, but it should be a reminder of how this was destroyed historically. But the Vatican said, no, no, not not this piece. (laughs) The Vatican at that time said, this piece of art is so precious, so valuable, and needs to be seen as close as it can be to its original state that they invested all kinds of money and spent all kinds of time, month after month after month after month, trying to figure out where the pieces went and how to put this back together and what kind of chemicals would be used to make it look like it did. And they restored this beautiful statue with Mary and Jesus. I think our families should be a beautiful picture of the love of Christ. But the enemy comes in, and he comes in and he begins to well away and bring destruction on the home. And we could say, well, we can still picture the grace of God, and that's true, but in every case possible, I think God says, not this family. I want you to restore it. I want you to experience what only I can do. He can do Ephesians 3.20, remember, exceedingly, abundantly, above all we could ever ask or think. I want to close with this passage from the book of Malachi. It's Malachi chapter 4, if you'll turn there. Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. There have been some scholars who have said along the way that this was speaking of the patriarchs of, of Israel being okay with what the new generations were doing. But I think context tells us that it really is about the family. It really is about what God can do in the home. Verse 4 says, remember the instruction of Moses, my servant. The statutes and the ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Get the priority of the Word of God back in place. When you go back to the Shema, Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, you see there this picture of Moses telling the people of Israel, Let love for God permeate your home and get the Word of God before your family. And he says, look, in verse 5 of Malachi, look, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He says, here's what I'm going to do in those last days. I think he's speaking of the church age here when he says, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and I will strike the land with a curse. The land's going to suffer if the family's not restored. In this nation we live in today, the nation is suffering because the home's not all that it should be. But we have the promise that the Spirit of the living God can today restore the hearts of the fathers for the sons and the sons for the fathers, a husband for a wife and a wife for a husband, children for their parents. And as you look at that cycle, we looked at five places. Where where do you see yourself? Where do you see those that you love and are praying for? How should you be praying in light of that? What does God want to do? Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I sense in my spirit that there is more counseling and encouraging that needs to be done than we could cover in a dozen messages today. But there are folks here that need to experience the healing touch in their homes that only you can bring. There are others where the situation seems beyond repair and in some cases they've already begun the need for healing from their hurts. I pray that your spirit will illuminate your truth this morning and help husbands and wives and moms and dads and children see exactly where they are in this story to understand the next steps that they need to take. I pray that you'd also give them courage to take those steps. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.